I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. With 1,350 miles of coastline, approximately 12,000 miles of fishable rivers, streams, and canals, and more than 7,500 lakes, ponds, and reservoirs, and with no closed season, it's easy to see why Florida is the fishing capital of the world. The recreational fishery resources in our waters provide entertainment for more than 1.2 million anglers annually. So to say that the overall health of our fisheries is a big deal is an understatement. In this episode, we're joined by fisheries biologist Kyle Miller to discuss the importance of a healthy fishery as it pertains to hunting, fishing, and overall health in the ecosystem. So tonight, I'm joined by Jim. Hello. And Kyle, let me have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So I'm a fisheries biologist out here in Eustis, Florida. Got my educational background from University of Florida, studied biology there, and um, actually had a minor in fisheries and aquatic sciences. That's kind of what introduced me to this field. And since then, been really blessed to have work that I enjoy and doing some good for conservation and the benefit of Florida's waters. So what made you want to get into marine biology? <laughs> so it's funny, I actually, in undergrad, one of our professors shared an email and he said, hey, here's a job posting I thought y'all might be interested in. And I read it and I said, man, that is a dream job. I can't believe they would pay somebody to do this. And it was basically a position that involved studying a bunch of different comparative waters in Florida and doing what's called electrofishing, and I said, man, that's what I want to do. So, I was going to do accounting, <laughs> but electrofishing, now I'm in. <laughs> so I, I read that, I was like, man, I got to apply, and it's actually funny, I, I unfortunately did not get that job on my first attempt, um, but I was lucky enough to get hired for a project, also doing outdoor conservation work, and that kind of led into the position that I have now, which is that same one I read about in undergrad, and been very fortunate, it's a project I really enjoy, and very fortunate for what I do. So when young people want to get into biology, it sounds like, I don't know if you were, were you already in a science major when you saw that and then decided to focus specifically on fisheries biology? And that's a great question. So I was a biology major in undergrad. I actually didn't have quite the focus. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I was actually thinking kind of a pre-med type deal. I didn't really know that these kind of job possibilities were out there. As soon as I kind of learned that there are, you know, fisheries positions all throughout the state, that's when I realized maybe I should specialize in something fisheries related. So I developed a minor in fisheries and aquatic sciences, which actually kind of gave me the opportunity for this work. Um, since then, I have <laughs> been working in the same field and uh, actually trying to develop that a little further. I'm taking um, graduate courses right now through UF as well for wetland and water resource management. Um, kind of along the same theme, just developing that passion for Florida's wetlands and natural water resources. Sweet. So when, if a young kid wants to get into it, what for somebody who thinks that this is where they want to go, what would you recommend a path they follow be? Yeah, so a lot of people see marine biology and they think, you know, that's cool. I'd love to work with these aquatic organisms. And it really is something that's a great resource in Florida. There's a lot of work for it. And it is something that you definitely can specialize in. Um, something that's interesting is I'm technically not quite a marine biologist. I'm actually a fisheries biologist. We work all in freshwater systems. Um, the section I'm in is actually freshwater fish research. So I would say if you're looking at trying to get a career, 
in any of these scientific fields, maybe kind of branch out a bit. Don't worry about focusing just on marine sciences. There's also all kinds of work in freshwater systems. You know, you could be looking at plant management, fisheries, um, just a lot of different ecological aspects um, besides just marine systems. Got it. Well, so the well, the first couple of years of college is the same for everybody, right? It's all English and history, but right. I would, it sounds like what you're saying is in the bio, biology fields, even see that third year of college is probably also largely just biology, and then you start to narrow it down. Or is it one of those things that if you if you get an education in biology, does it really specialize, and you actually get out there into the workforce? It, it definitely specializes. I'd say that freshwater fisheries is our specialty. Um, something you can do to get more involved is volunteer. Our agency, we have a lot of work and we can always use more volunteers. And that's a great way to get your foot in the door, kind of meet people in the agency. And it also provides a great impact for all the systems you're working on. So I'd say if you're thinking about getting into the field, volunteering is a great start. That'll help you narrow down a specialty. A lot of times you will need some kind of educational background to get employed in a very competitive job market. You want to have that educational background. But specializing in a certain area can actually really help you get those jobs. So it's actually tough to get a job when you're working for free. It is hard in Florida. <laughs> in Florida, at least. Man. Wow. And that's if you say, oh, what would you expect as a fisheries biologist? I would say, uh, don't expect to be rich. It's, <laughs> it's something we love. We do it because we're passionate about it. You know, we really want to protect these resources, but um, I'm not in it per, for the paycheck. It's like podcasting, you know, it's a <laughs> yeah, hell, of, right. hell of a side hustle for <laughs> deficit spending. Yeah. <laughs> it takes more out, way more out of my wallet a lot than it puts more. into it. <laughs> but we do it because we enjoy it. So yeah, it's all what, volunteer work. What kind of uh, volunteer opportunities does your agency have? Um, so recently it's been it's been a bit tougher with COVID. You know, it's harder to get new people in and out because not everybody's quite as comfortable. But we are still working with volunteers. Um, we actually last week had a couple of volunteers come out and they actually electrofish sampled with us. So they were netting fish just like we would as a biologist. Um, there's also a lot of outreach opportunities that volunteers can be really useful. I know this weekend actually in Leesburg, <laughs> we've got a youth fishing event planned where we actually have some fish kind of in a penned up area that we're going to put the kids on some fish. You know, they came from the hatchery and it's, it's a direct put and take fishery, but to get those kids actually hooking fish and get them excited, that's great. Oh yeah, And it, it's, a lot more useful when we have volunteers that can help events like that. Um, and lots of different processes can use them. So moving on from the volunteer aspect, what or maybe even with volunteers, what kind of projects are you guys working on right now? Uh, so I've been fortunate with uh, my career that I actually have a couple different projects that I have experience with. And it's involved a little bit of moving, but that has given me a lot of opportunities. So I started in Lakeland, Florida, working on a project called the Peace River and Withlacoochee River Threats Assessment. That was a really cool project looking at human influences on the riverbank, kind of looking at what kind of riparian habitat was still there. After that project, I worked on one called the National Rivers and Streams Assessment, which is actually funded by the EPA. It was a pretty cool project because they were actually conducting simultaneous surveys all throughout the United States, and we were actually responsible for the Florida portion. So we got to sample all throughout the state for that, everything from huge rivers in the panhandle to barely wadeable streams down in South Florida. And then currently I'm actually working on the project that was that dream position that I had in undergrad and that's called long-term monitoring. It's a really cool program where we're comparing a bunch of different core water bodies in the state. And we actually compare those from year to year to see what changes. And also we can compare from one water body to another to see what the health of an ecosystem is. Sweet. Hey, going back to the Withlacoochee and the Peace River. 
Um, couple things. You mentioned threats assessment. Is that an acronym or is that like directly like, hey, what is actually threatening the body of water? And then while you're answering that, um, riparian is a term that gets thrown around a lot on these shows. But, you know, I had to look it up back in the day. Why don't you describe exactly what is meant by the term riparian? So when we're talking about the riparian segment of a river, we're talking about that riverbank that is directly adjacent to the main river. So as soon as that's a dry portion of land, you're talking about the riparian section. And that's where all of the long-term plants are going to grow, everything from grasses to large woody plants. And that's really important for holding that bank together. Basically, we were looking at the stability of the bank, calculating something we called the bank erosion hazard index. That was kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of different factors, such as what the root depth is, what the sediment type is. And that would relate to how likely that bank is to hold together. We don't want to lose the bank to the river as the natural flow of the river occurs. You are going to you are going to change the path of the river, but we don't want extra sedimentation or extra inputs to the river because humans removed those plants and made it more likely to uh, fall apart. In the Peace River specifically, we had a lot of cattle ranchers around the area. They've actually cleared a lot of that vegetation on the bank because they want more pastures for their cows, etc. And so those cows now have direct access to the river. They're getting in there for water or anything like that. And that actually can cause a lot of degradation to the uh, river habitat. Gotcha. To be clear, we're not trying to throw any cattle ranchers in the bus no. or anything like that because there's an awful lot of them do, that are doing a ton and working in the mitigation banking system and whatnot to to, to keep Florida together and, and and whatnot. But I understand that you're just pointing out right. you know, there are places where you know, there's, there's, double, there's double-edged sword to everything sometimes. Um, and earlier I asked about threats. That is that an acronym or is that – literally direct threat to the river uh, that is direct threats to the river and basically we're trying to rank these eroded banks by a priority system and then developing a restoration area we were looking at what segment of the river would have the biggest impact if we could restore it so through that ranking system which one had the largest bank erosion hazards stuff like that we actually developed a ranking we picked out one restoration area which is actually right outside of Wachula, florida on the peace river gorgeous bank and we're actually putting a bunch of new vegetation in, planting trees, putting um, living roots into the bank so that there is a little bit more root mass to hold it together and trying to make that fish habitat where it's going to be a long-term improvement for the river. Nice. Same thing happened in lakes? Very similar process in lakes. Um, one of the big things in Florida is actually putting out man-made or artificial fish attractors. Um, that's just a great improvement to that offshore habitat, something that can attract the fish, give people an easy targetable area that they can fish and it's providing great habitat for those fish as well. Awesome. Yeah, no, we, we, I've been, uh, I take my son to fish in bear pond and, um, Seminole forest and you got all those little fish attractors right behind the dang, the dock. Now I swear those yeah. fish out there are, those are some Ivy league educated fish. <laughs> Because even the bluegill, you can only catch two or three, and then they're gone. And they wise up to it. Yeah. That's something we've been talking Do fish learn? And yes, they do. At, at what rate do they learn? Uh, not positive just yet. That's ongoing research. You know, Kyle was actually listening to one of our podcasts. I think it was the one about the artificial reef, and we were talking about different fish attractors in the lakes. And he, he tipped me off to something I didn't know about the buoys that are out there in the lakes. You can tell the difference between whether it's a natural or a man-made fish attractor by how, Kyle? Yeah, that's a great point, Jim. And uh, it actually can help you hone in on which of those specific reefs you want to fish. Um, look at those buoys. Certain ones will have a square border on it, and certain ones have a triangular border on it. And that will actually designate whether it's man-made or artificial. 
when they first went in those those natural ones that were just brush piles stuff like that those rounds are actually really more productive but with the natural wave action stuff like that they are going to break down those ones that you talked about in bear pond those mossback artificial attractors those ones hold the fish for a long time so now i'd be looking for those artificial attractors in the past maybe the natural ones were a bit better see but, for anglers man that's what you get for listening you gotta read the buoys and I've I've seen some of the buoys out on uh, like the the Harris chain, and uh, I believe there's one right outside the canal between uh, Lake Dora and that is Carlton or Beauclair that 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 canal runs through right there. I can't I always get Carlton and, and Beauclair mixed up. The uh, bigger so do I, and I'm on there every day. It's, it's the Beauclair. <laughs> yeah. it, it's Beauclair because you have the Popka Beauclair canal. But I believe there's one on the Dora side, if I'm not mistaken. And that's a good one. That's a good one. Is it? I I personally, I love uh, Lake Griffin. That's where I used to live over in Leesburg. And I've really keyed in on that lake. And I can tell you, those those artificial attractors, they hold fish. (laughs) Put this dude on speed dial come springtime. (laughs) (laughs) I'll drop a pin. (laughs) So so with your experience, can you look at a pond and tell what needs to be added or removed to create the epic fish habitat? I'd, I'd say you can get a pretty good general idea when you first look at a lake. And going back to the projects we've worked on, there was actually a time where I was helping a little bit in the private landowner section where we kind of work with landowners for conservation easements, stuff like that. And we actually had a couple of landowners that were wanting to improve their private ponds, which was really cool to me. I started out fishing ponds. I really love them as you know smaller water bodies. And Basically, you can look at it and you might not be able to diagnose every problem, but you could see what the biggest improvement would be. So a lot of these times it was simple as maybe putting in some kind of oxygenation aspect. Maybe you need a bubbler in the pond because your dissolved oxygen content is real low. So something like that, you can look at a lake, maybe think about what you would need. In that case, maybe I would try to bring a probe and and test what the actual dissolved oxygen content is. Another example might be adding a, a, a fish feeder. Realistically, that's the number one improvement you could do. If I had a pond, it would have a feeder on it. And I'd be fishing 15 minutes after those fish were, were fed. So you, you can look at a lake and see what it needs. A lot of times in Florida, one of the things that's lacking is offshore habitat. You know, these lakes just don't have much growing in the middle. It's kind of a dead zone out there. And that's why we do put those artificial attractors out in that deeper water. Man, we, we've talked about it a couple of times in the podcast that we were on a pond not too far, or lake not too far around from here. And if you imagine the pond actually had quite a bit of uh, growth on it, but this gentleman had put, for lack of a better term, an underwater fan in there that just slowly went back and forth. And it dug out a sand pit. But man, in that sand pit, we would we would joke around that the panfish in there you need a mighty big pan for. What, what is it you think that, this, is it just the change in relief that's drawing those fish there? Because you took a, what ordinarily would be full of weeds and actually made it clear, but man, there were a ton of fish right in that area. What is the moving water? Is it, what do you think it is? I, one of my first guesses would be that maybe if those fish were in a bedding season, they're looking for the substrate. So those fish, all the bluegill, red ears, stuff like that, they want to spawn on either shelly, sandy, kind of clear bottom. They don't prefer the plants for their spawning areas. So maybe that cleared out enough area that they felt comfortable spawning in there. It also probably improved the dissolved oxygen content at the same time. So I think maybe mm-hmm. you had a combination of factors, but it sounds like something that would definitely work. Makes sense. So I've got a question. Does a clear lake necessarily indicate a healthy lake? That's actually a really good question. So one of the 
aspects of of these fish health consumption warnings is based on the mercury content of the fish that's probably the number one health related issue when you're looking at fish is are they safe to eat and the one accumulating factor is mercury as you work up the trophic system these are predatory fish they've eaten all the little fish with mercury so you have more mercury accumulating in these older fish so when you're looking at for two lakes for comparison if you compare a clear lake in the ocala forest where you've got crystal clear water versus Lake Griffin, which is a hyper-eutrophic system, lots of plants, very high nutrient content, green water. The fish in Lake Griffin actually grow faster because there are more nutrients, more prey available. So those fish, if you had a three-pound fish from Lake Griffin, it would likely be much younger than a comparative fish from the Ocala Forest, which has clearer water, looks nicer, you'd rather swim there. But because that fish is older from the Ocala Forest, it likely has a higher mercury content. Are both safe to eat? Yes, probably. But um, you might look at more mercury accumulation in some of those older fish. I personally would probably still be taking the fish from the cleaner water. But it, there are pluses and minuses to eating either. Man, we've joked about that a bunch of times. That if if when I'm laying on my deathbed, the doctor's like, if you, if you only hadn't eaten so many of those wild-caught fish. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It makes me wonder, like, man, I mean, because you read about the mercury and other things, but how much of that stuff do you have to ingest to actually do yourself? I, I got to think the reality that you'd have to really work at it. And if you're not I, really sure to, what that is, you don't have to answer that. But if you're eating fish every day of the week, you might have a problem. I think maybe pregnant women have slightly yeah, more advisories. But unless you're having a bluegill for dinner every night, I don't think it's anything that's ever going to concern us. I mean, a bluegill for dinner. Quite often, it's not really a bad thing either, though, you know? Right. I do yeah. enjoy some bluegill. On the Swanee, we'll probably eat 30 of them. So. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll I'll, revisit that. I'll revisit that statement after we, we complete that 50-mile drift on the Swanee River, but just how much I enjoy bluegill. <laughs> it's like people t- people telling <laughs> me that, oh, you got to watch how much liver you eat out of wild animals. You might get sick. I'm like, man, I'm going to try to eat liver to be magnetic if I can. It's hard to come by. <laughs> so... Man, I almost don't want to ask this question, but I think it needs to be asked. You know, we're talking about all this, you know, habitat and things like this. And, uh, man, we can take a 5,000-foot flyover, but a lot of chat in Florida about the use of herbicides. You know, and sometimes as as lay people, you know, we want to just put things in boxes. So we we instantly go to our corners on that, right, where it's like, it's either good or it's bad. But in reality, there's probably an awful lot of gray. Can you talk a little bit about that or is that something you'd rather be like, no, let's move on to the next subject. (laughs) It's definitely something that needs to be addressed because there is a lot of gray area when you've got two sides that are so polarized. You've got the duck hunters and the bass tournament fishers. They love the hydrilla, for example. They love it. They fish it. It provides habitat. It's food. So they want to see it. And then on the contrary, you've got the lakefront homeowners. They've got the pontoon boat. They just want to enjoy the lake for recreational purposes. And they don't like hydrilla. It's clogging up their motor. It prevents their free access of the lake. So they're going to encourage it to be sprayed or treated with herbicide. Um, now, there are other methods such as mechanical harvest. Unfortunately, we compare mechanical harvest to like mowing your grass. You can do it. You might remove some of that hydrilla, but basically you'd have to do it every two weeks to have any kind of longstanding effect. Is that practical? Not at all on a financial scale. Um, so... You're looking at these two groups. You've got people that want to get rid of any aquatic vegetation, and then you've got your anglers that want to keep it. 
it gets even more convoluted when you've got people like crappie fishermen that they kind of like that open water. They're looking for deep drop off, stuff like that. So they actually don't prefer the hydrilla. They've got 10 lines out in the water on spider rigs. So they don't want hydrilla. It's going to tangle all their rods. So now you've got even anglers who oppose it. You've got anglers that love it. And it's a very polarizing issue. So we've actually developed some surveys. We're going out on the lakes, trying to plan meetings with stakeholders. And there are surveys to try to see what people's opinion of those exotic plants are. Now, I think most people would agree if it was a manageable portion of the lake, yeah, we can let it stay. Unfortunately, that hydrilla is going to take over. So it needs to be treated at some point. Um, the depth of the lake, the volume of water can really affect how it takes over. Um, but that is an issue that has many facets, and I don't think it's one that's going to be answered anytime soon in Florida, at least. No, we've gone a couple of meetings, and it's interesting to watch. Because when, when you're the – it's great different agencies whatnot not do these meetings. And then we come in there, and we don't have to you – know, we get to come in, and we can leave. And we have the ability to exist in la-la land. Like, why don't you just do more of this, whether it be mechanical harvesting or whether it just be spraying? And then you kind of watch the face of the the people that actually have to do it every day, and they're trying to explain either the cost or whatever the opportunity. No matter what the method is, there's always an opportunity cost. And it's pretty clear to see that a lot of folks really don't appreciate, like, the scale. Whether, no matter what side you're on, they, they really don't appreciate the scale of what you're dealing with and how it's not as simple as just, well, bring out another harvester or spray a little more or less that there's really, I don't have an end to this conversation. There's an observation. No, I, I feel bad a, for the pros. That's a great point. The scale of the takeover of hydrilla is very important. You know, how can we treat it? If it was manageable to keep hydrilla at maybe say 30% of the water body, I think a lot of people would encourage that, but unfortunately that's about impossible. So managing it to a practical extent does have a lot of different variables. So as a duck hunter <clears throat> and a lot of them will tell you that the ducks, they do eat, Hydrilla, and like you said, the bass prefer they use it as cover. But if we really want to get down to it, the ducks actually prefer the native vegetation. Um, we found more wood ducks and spatter dock than we ever do on hydrilla, you know, stuff like that. So, what sort of native vegetation should anglers and hunters be seeking, and why? And and that's a fantastic question because I really think if you're looking for the vegetation, you're looking for the habitat, that can really help you hone in on those areas where you're going to find success. Um, so for the example with waterfowl, you know, you're, you're looking at the hydrilla. If you find hydrilla, there will probably be coots. There will probably be ducks. You'll, you'll find birds that are eating that hydrilla. They love the tubers. They love eating those new shoots of growth. So it is a very high energy source. They'll eat it. But like you said, there's a lot of other stuff. That hydrilla shouldn't be here. So naturally, the ducks are not seeking out the hydrilla. And I think if you can hone in on those microhabitats of native plants, you're going to be a lot more successful. Um, you mentioned the spatter dock. I, I personally would say spatter dock mixed with bladderwort, which is a, a native. Um, it's actually a carnivorous plant. It's a little floating filament plant. If you find those two mixed together, you're going to find wood ducks. I, that's the perfect habitat. They seem to love it. So something like that, you can really dial in on a couple of native vegetations, even the combination of them can be great. Other things I might look for is, you know, banana lily, Illinois pondweed, maiden cane, um, Egyptian paspalidium. Those are a couple of grass-like ones that if those are fringing the area, they put a lot of good seeds into the water that will provide that high energy food for the ducks. If I'm a bass fisherman, 
same thing. I'm looking to target the right habitats. That that hydrilla will hold fish. If it's a good mat of hydrilla, you could punch it. Yes, there will be fish there, but it's not everywhere. It shouldn't be there. So we want to try to specialize in, you know, finding fish otherwise. You can do just as well on native submerged vegetation. Um, things like eelgrass is actually one of the better things to fish. If you can find eelgrass, it's also called tape grass. It's long, kind of looks like the grass in your front yard. If you can find that, you can actually fish like a rattle trap, for example, and pull it through that grass where it doesn't get hung up like the hydrilla. And you will do way better than you would fishing in the hydrilla. If I'm fishing the the offshore vegetation or the submerged stuff, the eelgrass is what I'm looking for. Um, and, and that can also change based on the time of year. If I'm fishing in the springtime, I would probably be looking for the spawning habitat that bass might prefer, which would be things like cattails or bulrush, which is another similar one, those long, taller grasses. And that's where their eggs really stick to it. So they like making habitat within those vegetation where there's patches, but thick enough to keep them safe. And if you're targeting those bulrush areas, the cattails, or fishing submerged vegetation like eelgrass, you can do just as well as fishing the hydrilla. I've had a lot of success taking like a, a big 10-inch worm with a heavy weight. And when you can find that big patch of eelgrass, instead of, you know, like when you when you traditionally think of fishing like a, a soft plastic, you kind of want to bounce it off the bottom. Drag it through the eelgrass and stop. Drag it, yeah. stop. Drag it, stop. And it just makes all kinds of racket through the water and all that vibration as it bumps through all the eelgrass and then you'll stop and you go to drag it again and boom, that's it. And that eelgrass is holding all the juvenile fish. You know, there's small bluegill stuff like that. If you get the commotion in there, I think you can really drive up the whole energy. I'm going to change gears a little bit. I always wanted to ask this of a biologist. So without a bucket, how do fish get from one pond to another? Which is a hilarious question because we still do debate that. You know, I wish we could go back 5,000 years and see how the heck did these fish get here. And even now, it's such a big question. We've got these peacock bass, um, invasive fish like that. And how do they manage to spread so quick? And the, the best answer I can tell you is by sticking to the birds. I know it sounds crazy, but those eggs are actually designed to stick to the vegetation. You know, they'd be sticking to the base of the spatter dock or the base of the cattails. So they've got that kind of sticky characteristic. If you get a big blue heron, some kind of wading bird walking through the shallows, they pick up eggs on their feet, fly somewhere else to feed, and somehow those eggs drop off into a new body of water. Seems crazy to me, but uh, it's the only way that, that fish could have traveled over land, and it is the way that these fish have dispersed all throughout the state. I, I think in the past there maybe was more connectivity, there was less less canals, you'd have more wetlands where it would flow like a river and, and maybe that would join closer bodies of water. But some of these disconnected lakes, like in the Acala Forest, you know, it, it almost had to be by birds that they traveled that far. Yeah, it makes sense too. And if and I've seen, I remember I used to drive down Maitland Avenue and they had some floody canals or whatever the water is. I mean, you could look down if the sun was right and you'd actually see bass sitting in there. I remember one time, at Lake Destiny, there used to be old 7-Eleven. And I was sitting there watching a bass, and all of a sudden I saw a guy come out of the parking lot with a rod and reel. So, I mean, this is a little dinky bottle of water with a fairly decent-sized fish in it. So it, how it got there, I don't know. I, I don't know if somebody released it, but I imagine it probably got into the same we were just talking about. But if you think about when there wasn't a lot of people and there was all these mud puddles all over Florida, those distances that you were talking about where birds are hopping from place to place might not have been that great. And when you think about millennia to do it in virtually 
unlimited instances of birds hopping around back and forth, eventually you're going to get two eggs in there. I, I think you're right. More yeah. birds, more puddles. It just had more opportunities for them to expand like that. Yep. So a second ago, you kind of brought up the uh, the peacock bass, which I think we just had a new state record yeah. come about. Yeah, Guy it was like caught nine it. pounds. Yeah, fishing after work. Love it. <laughs> but uh, so and that, that's one of those. Have you ever found fish where they're not supposed to be, be it native or invasive? And, you know, are there benefits to some of the invasive fish that we have? Uh, so Florida is huge for the fish where they shouldn't supposed to be. Um, Peninsular Florida we don't get many cold freezes and that actually is what would knock back a bunch of these fish. They, the non-native fish that we have are coming from areas with very similar climates. You know, it's warm all year round. A lot of them are either from central America or, or Africa, similar, similar climates, you know, they're near the equator and it doesn't freeze, which is the big thing. So one of the fish that a bunch of people have always maybe heard about on a menu is tilapia. Very easy to farm raise, very economical. Well, now you've got the problem. Those tilapia are in pretty much every body of water in peninsular Florida. If we get a really cold winter, it'll freeze them. It'll kind of knock back their range, but they're definitely expanding. They're showing up in more bodies of water and becoming more numerous. A fish like that, it, it does have a value as an edible species. You know, they, they're on the menu. And if you get a wild caught tilapia, it's going to taste better than a farm raised tilapia. Uh, but unfortunately, they probably still shouldn't be there. They are outcompeting some of these native fish for range. They'll they'll knock bass off their beds and and make less spawning potential. So they can they can really have some negative impacts. There there's a couple of fish that, that maybe have a sport fishing value. You know things like the peacock bass. There's actually clown knife fish wild in South Florida that people love catching those. So that's one of the positives that they might bring, but I'd say the, the habitat destruction and the competitive aspect of those fish has, has really harmed our native fish populations in certain areas. How bad is the snakehead? The, the snakeheads are bad. And you know, it's crazy. There's a couple of different types. I think even Virginia and Georgia have a couple mm-hmm. outbreaks of snakehead, which that obviously means they're not being affected by these cold winters. So I think they're going to, they're going to be showing up more and more and, you know, we've got a fish called the bowfin that's a very similar fish to the snakehead, and that is, that's a native fish. It's a very important part of the ecosystem. They can survive in really low oxygen areas because they can actually gulp air and use that oxygen. So very unique fish, and they actually provide a great role in the ecosystem. Well, now they have a direct competition in the snakehead that they might not have had otherwise. So the snakehead can really be displacing some of our native fish as well. Mm. You catch a good bowfin, they'll bend your hook out straight, too, trying to get off there. They're oh, fun, man. I mean, they put up a good fight. Yeah, just, you, they get big. <laughs> too bad they're so jelloey, man, because oh, you're right. They're a lot of fun to catch. They don't look that great, but you know, I gotta I, say, I've I tried it, won. man. I ate one. I was impressed. Oh, wasn't it jello, man? I mean, that, yeah, the taste was all right. <laughs> <laughs> so you got any that? Well, I guess we talked about it. Actually, I was going to say there didn't really benefit, but really, it's ecologically answers no. Aside from the and you know, the peacock baskets, sport fishing, or the the atom- the Mayan cichlid atomic sunfish. But by and large, <laughs> they they all need to go. Yeah, if you catch one, don't throw it back. You know, they, you know, like you mentioned the uh, the Mayan cichlid, the atomic sunfish. Um, they're really they're good looking fish. They're very attractive. They've got colors and they taste great. So, you know, they're, they're hard fighting fish. They're, they taste great. They've got good table fare. So there are reasons to go catch them. And I think if you encourage people to eat these non-native fish, especially, you know, that's not going to 
two birds at once, basically. So that's the best way to get rid of them. Is just frying pan. <laughs> Throw them in grease. <laughs> release them into the pan. So, uh, how do marine biologists go about uh, finding out what fish are in the ponds? Fisheries biologists. Fisheries biologists, sorry. So, my answer, the way we survey is actually called electrofishing. We've got a boat with a generator on it. That generator actually goes to a a customized control box called a generator powered pulsator. And that allows us to control a couple of different aspects. We can control the frequency. um, We can control the percent of power. And you can actually pr- control the amount of voltage that you're putting into the water. That allows us to dial in to the exact power that will be transmitted to those fish. And we're actually driving around using that power to temporarily stun the fish. Um, very cool. The, the swim bladder in the fish makes them kind of float to the surface. So you're driving around stunning the fish. And we'll actually scoop them up, put them in the boat in a live well that's an aerated live well. Once we've scooped those fish, we record some biometric data, the length, the weight, um, species, kind of occurrences, location. And it, it's a really cool way to collect fish. Now, the, the funny part is you actually cannot use that in marine biology. It's not effective in salt water. In salt water... That's well, a hell of a conductor, though. It, exactly. And that, that's funny is actually the, the fish in salt water are... Um, let me get this straight. The fish are less conductive than the water. In freshwater, the fish are more conductive than the water because that allows them to discrete waste along those those conductivity lines. So you can actually only stun the fish in freshwater. And in saltwater, it would go right around them because the water is more conductive. So yeah. it, it it's actually, I think, the, the no, it makes sense part of what I do. It's what I, I read that a just job description, and I was like, man, I want to do that. And uh, it's unique to freshwater fisheries so it's something really cool that we get to do so the thing that does the shocking man is it like a flux capacitor runs on you know bananas and beer or, or <laughs> there's fancy or is it more wires like a, is it really just a lawnmower engine that you know <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's funny it's actually just a standard generator and um, yeah. you know the the output is slightly modified where it's it's going through some fiberglass poles off the front of the boat that drip right into the water i I think maybe some people in the past have figured out a way to do it with a car battery. I, I would not encourage that at all. Well, that was the next question. Can you find the blueprints for this thing out on, on YouTube or, 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 or Facebook? Or, or is that a no-no? I'm sure somebody recreational engineered it, but yeah. I would not encourage it. <laughs> so what's the what's the biggest fish you've seen come up during those those uh fish counts or, or the studies and stuff like that so the the biggest bass i've seen was just at 11 pounds it's like 11 pounds two ounces oh, the, it was gorgeous don't get me wrong that thing was oh it's dreamy you know that's that's yeah. the bucket list fish right there the big fish actually don't respond quite as well to electricity um, for whatever reason maybe they're wiser maybe they know how to avoid it um, they can sense it from a little further away with that bigger surface area so there's actually not as many instances of getting those fish with electricity. Um, there's a couple of cool citizen science-based programs that actually are trying to gather data on those bigger fish specifically. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with Trophy Catch at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like a popka, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a program where anglers can submit their verified catches. If you have a bass on a scale that's over eight pounds, um, you can submit evidence of that and actually get some really cool prizes, including um, discounts on rods and I think even a Bass Pro Shops gift card. And that was kind of a cool venture where you were trying to collect the data on those bigger fish because that's, you know, the really important fish to drawing people to the state of Florida. And it also connected the citizens with the resource, you know, provided them some feedback. You can actually, you can go on to Trophy Catch website and you can see where people are catching them. You can see what baits they're using. And it's a, 
honestly kind of a cool way to plan your fishing trip too. I think I'd, I was confusing the tag program in Lake Apopka. I think what you're referring to is almost like the uh, the Catch a Florida Memory, the freshwater version of Catch a Florida Memory. That's exactly what Got it is. It's, okay. the, it's the Florida version. So there there are a couple of submission requirements. It's it's a reward system for bass over eight pounds. So we do want a verified weight of that fish. Um, you have to take a photo of the fish on a scale where the whole body of the fish is visible at the same time as the readout. You can find a little bit more info about those rules online, but the prizing is actually incredible. You know, Bass Pro Shops gift cards. I mean, that, that's enough to get me to submit one right away. And you already caught this eight pound fish. Why not show it off? <laughs> right. So, you know, you, Jim, you mentioned the the tagging program in, in uh, Lake Apopka. And so what is the, how do biologists tag fish? We'll start there. Yeah. So we use what's called a dart tag. It's um, basically a, a variable size depending on the body of the fish we'll call it about a four inch tag it's just a small cylinder very thin um like about like a lollipop stick or something like that you could imagine um we'll put that tag into the fish insert it kind of in between some of the dorsal rays of that fish so it holds tight and that tag can have a unique identifying number for that fish usually to encourage anglers to submit those tags there is also a cash reward associated with it it'll have fwc phone number with a tag number and it'll say here's a hundred dollar reward if you submit this tag and that actually is useful because of the value of the information that it provides Um, so we attach that financial amount to it because we really want to encourage anglers to turn in that data we can use that to track the movement of bass. Whenever a fish is tagged, it's likely also recorded the uh, coordinates that that fish was collected at. So we'll look at the movement of that fish. And then another project that's recently been developed is to analyze the impacts of the recent state regulation change on bass. So we have recently changed where you can keep one larger bass, you can keep a couple smaller bass. And the goal of that recent regulation change is actually to shift the population towards having more large fish. So we're kind of looking at what size fish are anglers keeping? The goal was to tag fish of different sizes, see what anglers are keeping, and then eventually we're going to look at that information, kind of develop how those rule changes have affected the size of the population. So you're supposed to record that or, you know, report that tag and then keep it, or can you report the tag and throw the fish back? So you can still release that fish if you'd like to. That tag is actually very easy to cut. Just snip the tag. It's actually got a line on it where you can cut it. Um, If you... Don't happen to do that, at least write down the number on the tag. That's very important. Um, I think you do want to preferably keep that physical tag, you know, ensure the, you can verify your fish that way, have that right. physical. So you can, you can write down the number, but uh, we would encourage you to cut that tag and you can cut it off of the fish. That way the fish can survive. No problem. I mean, awesome. They got <clears throat> to put a way to, they've got to put something together, kind of like, you know, duck hunters on their call lanyard will have all the yeah all the all the uh, the duck bands yeah all the bands i mean you gotta have some for fishmen they got all the tags we'll start make some earrings out of them i was gonna say rings man yeah. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll come up with something yeah man. we can figure so something out we talked about why biologists tag fish and, and and how you do it what what would you say the greatest success story that you have coming out of the fish tagging program has been so one of those cool ones that we tag is the trophy catch bass, bass that are eligible for the trophy catch system, ones that are above eight pounds. If we come across one of those in regular standard sampling, we'll put a tag in that fish. Um, that tag also has an additional $100 reward associated with it. Oh, so you talked about that. That should make my getting, day. Yeah. Not only do you get the trophy catch rewards, you're also getting the tag reward. Um, but to me, that's kind of cool because I might see a fish that's 
eight pounds in the field and say, wow, that was, you know, really cool, unique instance. I got to see this fish. Well, somebody else catches it in a couple of months. It's nice to know that fish was still healthy after it got tagged. It, it, you know, provided somebody else a really cool experience. They got to catch this monster bass and it actually gives us the, the insight of has that fish grown? Has it moved? And, and that can be really useful on I how the- many of those big fish are caught. And the, the most interesting thing to me was that when you're looking at bass anglers across the board, eight pound bass are caught at about the same rate as one pound bass. There are just that many less eight pound bass that you're not catching them as frequently. So it, it can be useful in calculating how many of those fish are caught, how many are recaptured, stuff like that as well. 10-4. You know, you were talking earlier, you mentioned the difference between eutrophic water and clear water. And that in eutrophic water, a younger fish will be larger. And in clear water, it might not be. So the next, that kind of leads into how can you tell, how do you age a fish? Yeah, and that's what, one of the very cool biological aspects of what we get to do. So a fish has a, a unique structure in the inner ear called an otolith or an ear bone. Wait a minute. Fish have ears? <laughs> they can hear. The, not external <laughs> ears, but they, they do have internal uh, auditory processing. We'll call them ears um, for the sake of ease. Um, so I actually brought a couple examples. I'll show you those too. But um, it's a it's a hard structure. It's a calcified structure that's in a fish. And as the fish grows at different rates based on season, you know, they grow faster in the spring and slower in the winter that structure will actually lay down rings similar to the rings on a tree. So un- unfortunately, it is a, it's a lethal method. It is within the ear bone of the fish, but it is highly accurate. We can, we can tell you how old a fish is within one year over 90% of the time. So it's a great way. If you don't know how old that fish is, you don't know how long it's been in the lake, we can tell you how old it is, which is very useful for calculating that growth information. That's so pretty interesting. What, a, what we're looking at, um, he's brought several of them in, and they look a lot like fish scales, but they're definitely bone. They're heavy. They're harder, yeah. Yeah, um, and they're white because uh, you know, I guess they're white because they're bone, and you can, you can see the rings in them. And I've actually got, um, if I can send you this after the podcast, I've got a cool picture of one under a microscope where you, you can count the rings and you can say, wow, that's a four-year-old bass right there. So it, it, it's kind of a cool way to know how long that fish has been growing in the system. Those are all baths, bass otoliths? Uh, so this one, these are actually from my personal collection. If I bring a fish home for dinner, I'll, I'll generally take the otoliths out of it. Um, and I'll, I'll record the date who I was fishing with, kind of a, a little memento from the fishing trip, but also the, the data of my fishing. So you're that, a, like you're a trophy fisherman. <laughs> this looks like uh, snook and redfish is what the what the tag says in here. That was a good yeah. one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> snook and reds? Oh, yeah. So uh, how, long, how long do largemouth bass live generally? Which is about a 10-pound bass is roughly 10 years old. So, wow. uh, you know, they're growing a little faster in that earlier stage in their life. You know, you get a, a maybe a four-pound bass might be something like three or four years old, you know, a little bit quicker growth in that scale, but you, you can roughly estimate a bass to approximately a pound a year. Hmm. That's interesting. But how long do they, how long do they, live? Oh, how long do they live? Uh, yeah. Not typically 10 years would be rare. It, it's, they're not very long lived fish. A bass, you know, getting a six year old bass is relatively very old. Um, bass, there's a lot of turnover. Again, that can relate to the system you're on. A, a eutrophic lake like Lake Griffin, a fish will not live as long. Um, if there's less nutrients in the lake, the fish might might live longer. They'll be older. 
but for bass a, a, approximately a year a pound a year is a good across the board average so wait a minute one of the things that you'll often hear like if a guy were to harvest a 12 pound bass everybody's like oh you killed the breeder but from what you're telling me you know the reality is if you harvest that 12 pound bass say versus the three pound bass chances are the 12 pound bass next time it runs across anything that is naturally harmful to it it's done for anyway yeah you're not cutting as many breeding seasons off if you harvest a bass that's what pound um something you would have to also consider though is for female bass a lot of their development and energy use goes into developing those eggs um, so there's something called a gonadosomatic index which is basically the relationship of the portion of eggs to the portion of the overall body size and if you've got those large, large bass, they're actually putting out more eggs per body size. Plus the fact that it is a larger fish, um, it's, it's an order of magnitude larger number of eggs. So there are definitely more potential eggs coming out of those bigger fish, not as many breeding seasons left. So there, there's two ways to look at that it. That makes you know? sense. Yeah. Let them go because they're, they're in prime time. So and yeah, you know, okay. really, realistically, those like six to ten pound bass are really the the big breeders. Those are putting out most of the eggs in the lake. Once they're over ten, I'd say they're they're a bit older. That's probably when you'll see a decline in the egg ratio. But about six to ten pounds, those are really the breeding females, the really heavy breeding ones. All right. So next time I catch a twelve pounder, it's going in the frying pan. Yeah. First, I gotta catch the, twelve. The first time never you catch a twelve pounder. Yeah. <laughs> So Woody fish is is there a definitive way for the the lay person to tell the sex of a fish? Yes, it might not be easy. Um, you could strip spawn a fish. Um, and oftentimes when we are evaluating, actually, for instance, we're looking at the effects of this regulation change. We're only looking at female fish. Um, we know we're going to have to take the age on those fish. We don't want to take home male fish that we're not going to be able to use. So if we're looking for female fish, we do it in the springtime. You can have them eject some of the eggs, and that would clarify that they are definitely a female or, or the opposite for a male. You'll, you'll get something on your hand, too. Um, <laughs> but in the field, yes. In, in the springtime when a fish is ready to breed, yes, you might be able to, to tell. There, there are not any external signs on a bass, Um which is different from a couple of different fish. We have some fish with sexual dimorphism, a bluefin killifish, for example. The males have great blue fins, really red, vibrant borders, and the male is a good-looking fish compared to the females a little more drab, so those guys are like ducks. A bass, there's no external clue. You can't tell just looking at it, but random fish, you know, another funny example is a lake chub sucker, a male, <laughs> which is a great name. Whoever named that thing, I props to them um the the one of the fins on the fish a male will have two lobes and a female will have three lobes so there's a couple of different humps or or borders on it and, and a couple of fish have a random feature like that that you could distinguish male from female but definitely not super common to be able to externally tell so really it just depends on the fish yeah you gotta yeah do it in the spring you know kind of work with those fish you'll you'll get some some eggs are milt and, and that'll <laughs> do do males cap out in weight i mean i've always been told that the really big ones are probably female yeah with bass the, the big ones are definitely going to be your females um another interesting comparison when you ask that if you look at snook a lot of snook actually change their sex from male to female so most snook are going to be born male once they reach that breeding size they can actually change to start producing eggs 
I believe they call it protandrous or, or and it's it's a very interesting life cycle where basically the slot size for snook is when they have reached breeding size but you don't know if that's going to be a male or female because it's also right in that transitory period where they might be male they might be female so a couple of different interesting lifestyle or life progress changes that fish have used to uh, be more successful yeah this is way off we're talking to birds i read the new york times a day or two ago that they actually recorded two wild condor eggs i understand these are natural birds that produced offspring and they never fertilized i know I, they talk about that in jurassic park where you can actually have eggs and all of a sudden whoop, create dinosaurs without actually being fertilized but it happened in, in with these condors yeah, and apparently California condor yeah happening at that level of evolution where you get into birds as opposed yeah. to say reptile and amphibians apparently it was really remarkable um and it from totally what you think about it, supposedly it happens in a really rare circumstances and is a the last ditch effort, I guess, when a species doesn't have many of them that that ability exists. Um, I don't know if you know you've got a background in biology. What what do they? I don't mean to embarrass you if you don't know because I can't yeah. remember the term. But what is that term when that happens and an egg somehow magically, or it's not magic, but somehow all the things divide and whatnot, and even though it wasn't fertilized, it still produce a, a chick. I, I'm not positive if I know that you know, the terminology for it, but you could draw the comparison to when you buy eggs from the store. You know, those eggs are a non-fertilized egg, but every so often you might find an embryo in one of those eggs. And usually I think it's related to the stress that that organism might've had when it was producing that egg. So those condors, did they have some way of knowing that there was not very many left in the species and they needed to have eggs reproduce without fertilization? I'm not sure. Um, I, I would say that maybe those individuals were under more stress, which created the environment that that was possible oh it's still pretty amazing to read about it uh, very cool so maybe uh going going off the grid again or taking a terrible segue um you know when you're when you're on your day off and you're out in the water out in the woods you know what do you, what do you like to do are you are you are you an angler or are you a well, hunter <laughs> which one it's is out, it? it's outdoors that's for sure um i've actually got a, a little ginu if y'all know those by name just oh, a, yeah. a square stern canoe you know it, it, it's not fast i'm not racing you to a spot but it'll get me where i need to be and i'd say most of the time in my day off i like to enjoy the salt water personally i think those salt water fish are way tastier so that's what i want to bring home anyways um also, man, with winter coming up, I'm a, a huge waterfowl hunter. I, I love the birds. I'm not not a huge upland guy quite yet. I'd love to love to get into it a bit more, but the duck hunting has really got me excited. It's something I never grew up doing, and it's something that I really developed an interest for. And you know, coming up with a plan and trying to convince these ducks to come all the way from Canada and land 20 yards away from me, it's really cool when it works out. It makes you you know, it makes you feel like the plan really came together. Yeah, I agree. Like this time of year, somebody says, what are you? I'm a hunter. Yeah. Exactly. In June, I'm an angler. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose if, if somebody asks, like, do you have a primary? I would probably say it is a, I'm definitely more of a hunter than an angler. But, uh, and maybe it's not really that important, but I was going to ask do you, when you think of yourself, do you think of yourself primarily as a recreationist? Are you a hunter or are you an angler? Or is it I'd, I'd say tough. originally an angler, you know, bass fishing is what got me into it, kind of developed my love for outdoors with the saltwater fishing. But I'd say really my perfect combination is when you get to combine those both, man, the cast and blast. You can't beat it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm from Tampa Bay. You know, I, I grew up doing a bunch of wading, a bunch of, you know, flats fishing in Tampa Bay. Then I realized you can also duck hunt it. I get I, I can find 
pretty good diversity out there you know get species i might not occur anywhere else and uh then you get to go fishing at the end of the day too man you can't beat that combination nope so with all your time on the water man you got a you got an extra edge on your duck holes <laughs> and you know this this project called long-term monitoring we are comparing lakes all throughout the state so i get to travel to lakes all throughout the state lots of travel but man that has keyed me in on some really unique honey holes that yeah, one more reason I, to put this guy in speed though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I, it's funny because you know if, if you're going fishing or, or hunting on a freshwater body anywhere in the state of Florida, and you say, "Hey, Kyle, I'm going to this lake," I could I could almost definitely give you some advice on it. You know, and that's the exact information I'd be using on a personal level. And it's really cool to get to know all these bodies of water so well. You know, if I'm going hunting this weekend, I can choose between 15 lakes within an hour drive and expect different things at each. That's one of the beauties of being in Florida is we have so many like bodies of water that it, there's a lot of times we're like, where, where do you want to duck on this weekend? I don't know, man. <laughs> like, where do you think it's going to be best? <laughs> I don't know either, man. We just got to pick one and go for it. <laughs> it's going back to our opener, man. A lot yeah. of possibilities. There is a lot out there, but you know, that's what we love about it. You get into paralysis by analysis sometimes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. All the time. Go on that All trophy catch website. You'll never be able to decide where to fish. Be like, oh, they're getting eight pounders here, here, here. Like, it's yeah, tough it's to pick one now. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, the real success, those guys are catching the eight pounders. They make it look easy, but that's because they're, they're wading through the twos and threes. They're just out there all the time, mostly. Oh, maybe not. Little kids also like, looky. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but when you're out there, is there a, you mentioned birds. Is there is there a particular species or game that you haven't had a chance to chase that you're really looking forward to? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to delve more into that upland stuff. I, I think the quail are, are gorgeous little birds, and it's something that I think would be really fun to, you know, explore some upland territory and try to find new birds like that. And that's something I'd like to try. Um, pretty high on my bucket list, I got to say, is a, uh, a good drake shoveler. I've, I've got a couple in Tampa Bay, and they're Honestly, I think it's my favorite bird. They're just so unique. I really like watching them work, and they're they're a cool bird. And I, I'd love to get a drake shoveler. Love to get a quail. Um, maybe a couple more turkey. <laughs> the, f- the first wild bird I shot on waterfowl I shot in Florida was a drake shoveling duck, and I didn't know anything. I mean, I'm a I'm a meat eater, right? So, blam, you know, and 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 um, later on we shot some quail and things like that, and. And not quail. I'm sorry. Later on, we shot some teal. Yeah. And Same there size, was some but... question. In fact, the reality is, is the one of the other fellas nipped the bird, but it was going away, man. He did not. He didn't kill it. And I definitely dropped it. But I wasn't. I'm not a. I don't have a bunch of stuffed ducks and things like that. You know, a lot of taxidermy. I mean, he came over all like, hey, man. Uh, do you mind? You know, trade. I was like, I'll take that teal, man. Here. Yeah. He was all lit up like, wow, you know. <laughs> and, you know now I found out that like, yeah, man, you kind of gave away. Yeah. yeah. Like that was not an equal trade. And I was like, yeah, teal ain't great though. <laughs> yeah, the teal would taste better. I'll give you that. Teal's definitely going to taste better. Um, I, I think those shovelers are underrated, man. I, people people call them mud mallards. I'm like, man, no, that's Hollywood. I want that shoveler. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I so, guess it's, it's, our, it's a question of commonality, I think, for a lot of folks, but. If you're uh, you want to get into some of the upland stuff, you should join at some of our, join us at some of our small game hunts we got coming up this year. We get you out on some snipe. Try and get you out on some snipe. Yeah. I would love to. Yeah, I'll, I'll be following those events pretty closely. Oh, and as far as the Brian Irish, if you're listening to this and you're still in on this podcast, and we got to get this fellow behind Murphy, you're out at. Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you where, but yeah, <laughs> Brian. Well, I'll be reaching out. 
Yeah, would love to. He can he can get you on some quail too, some wild quail in Florida. And that's the thing, you know, you could hunt these caged quail, and and that's the thing. I think it would be a really fun hunt, but man, a wild quail. That's I'd I'd love to get one. Uh, if you get a chance to meet Murphy, Murphy when he's not hunting is like the most laid back. I mean, just super charismatic dog, great house dog. Once once Brian gives him the command that that dog stone cold killer. Just oh, he's killed more birds than cancer. It's Brian, great. you got to tell me that command. My dog needs it. <laughs> no, he's not training. He, he gives him the command. Yeah, just, Murphy's a lot of fun. So, man, I as we draw this down, we usually end this with a with a tip of the week. Uh, so, as a marine biologist, you know what kind of tip do you have for hunters, anglers? I'd say habitat is key, man. Um, and being able to differentiate between, you know, your emergent plants submersed is one thing, but being able to dial in on those micro habitats, you know, find those exact combinations of species that the fish or the ducks are looking for. And I think that's how you can really have your success. You can spend your time scouting well, and you can really enjoy your time out there a lot more. Yeah, I'm a, I'll go with, you know, Jim, you just talked about death by analysis, paralysis by analysis. Uh, just trust your gut. I agree. It, it's hard to get out there and you scout this place and you see ducks there. Or you look at that trophy catch website and you see all these people catching fish all over the place. Just just trust your gut. It'll look right. Yeah. I agree. So, you know, mine is related to what Kyle talked about. Well, habitat. Well, mine would be do your homework so that you, that you know what you're looking at. One of the things I've been doing recently is just trying to know more about birds sitting out in deer stands because we're constantly surrounded by all these little birds that we're not hunting you know and in our crew guys we're off to a front they're just crunch birds because i make that same crunch 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 and then you start to differentiate between the sounds of the crunch you know that bird you know the toe he makes this or the chickadee makes that and really trying to understand that but now i'm realizing in addition to birds and i'm also trying to figure out the damn trees now i got to try to figure out what that chinese creeping weed that you were talking about was or lemon something or other and, and now I got to start to figure out what all the little slimy green stuff is too. <laughs> so, but it, it all, I'm making light of it, but if you want to be a better outdoorsman, it all matters. We think mm-hmm. it doesn't, it does, you know, and even you, you start to figure out even like turkey hunting, you know, all of a sudden a squirrel chatters off a little bit. Maybe you heard a putt, maybe you didn't hurt a putt, but all of a sudden that squirrel starts, and you're like, mm, he's over there, right? So learning how all the different, things interact will make you a better outdoorsman well if you guys haven't already gone down and given us a review uh we would still greatly appreciate it they keep going up and up and up every week and we love reading those great five-star reviews and man at this point as much as we've increased in five-star reviews i'm gonna have to just sit down and do a whole podcast reading reviews but you guys have been great about getting on there and writing us some five-star reviews and make sure in addition to that you're Following us on Facebook and you join the Under Pressure Out Nation, Under Pressure Outdoors Nation group, and there's going to be links for that stuff right down in the podcast description because you're going to see those events like the small game hunts. And when we do the crawfish boils coming up, we've got river cleanups. It's, it's all going to be there, and we don't want you guys to miss out on that. We'd love to meet you in person and actually get out there and, and help you volunteer. And, uh, well, maybe we try and get some links for volunteer opportunities to the organization you're working for and see if we can get you guys some more volunteers lined up for that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been really enjoyable chatting with you guys. Just uh, spreading a great message about outdoors conservation and uh, the great impact one individual can make. So we really appreciate you joining us, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Hope to have you again. We can chat about any of those in more detail if you'd like. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you soon.